can't think of a better time to be able to meet together with our church family than to celebrate our Lord Jesus coming into the world and to examine the purpose to which Jesus came, which I think is something the world overlooks today and has become some of a novelty amongst, amongst our culture in some regard. And even amongst churches, which we would call a, a subculture within, within the church, it amazes me of how many churches consider not meeting on Christmas Day for morning worship. To not meet on Christmas would be likened to not meeting on Easter Sunday because of the resurrection. And so I'm grateful for each and every one here and our friends and our church family who are meeting online with us today and those who cannot meet with us due to illness or sickness. We have one of our own who is in the hospital this morning, Miss Jeannie. And so we are praying for her and her recovery. And so we are excited to be able to gather around God's Word on this Christmas morning. And the motive as to why people will dismiss coming to worship on Christmas morning on a Sunday for church, the motive in this, in people's thinking, escapes me. And, and so it is not for me to examine somebody's motives. That is up to the Lord Himself and His Holy Spirit to, to examine each and every motive. But if I was to think a little bit upon this purpose, maybe people counsel church services so that people could have family on Christmas morning with them. So to have their family on Christmas morning join them. But I begin to think about this. What better place, what other place would you want to be with your family than to worship on Christmas Day? Even in your homes, as you might be meeting in your homes this this morning watching us live, be worshiping in your home in some regard. And could it be that our quote-unquote family time on Christmas morning really means gift exchange or an overexcitement to see what Santa has brought the night before rather than to attend church on Christmas morning that will only damper the festivities? Now, I'm not the judge, and so that is for whoever hears this they might even go back online later on and listen to this sermon if I put this online and know right up front that I'm not your judge. Uh, the Lord is your judge. But is it more of a desire for material things than for spiritual food that we need? It seems right when we focus on the incarnate Son of God and without Christ, there is no celebration of Christmas. Only what the world brings to us. Without the focus on the incarnate Son of God and to worship Him and His advent at Christmas time, that simply means that we are missing so much. See, within the birth of our Lord Jesus, we spent this month talking about, O come, O come, Emmanuel, the coming of the Lord, the Adventists, the coming of Christ into the world. And we have spent a lot of time this month fleshing out what it means to have hope, love, peace, joy, and then the coming of our Lord, there is still a sense of awe and a sense of wonder as to what God has actually done by sending His own Son into the world. The, uh, the uh, in-physical, if you will, spiritual um, Lord God of all, and the Bible says God is spirit, stepping into the physical in the person of Jesus. So there's a sense of awe, there's a sense of wonder, and, and maybe that is what we have lost over the years. 
This sense of wonder about what God has done, a sense of, of, of awe. And what I mean by that is God is just simply awesome in what he does. Maybe we have lost the sense of wonder, and I must admit that sometimes I find myself even glossing over the incarnation. When we meet this morning to celebrate the birth of our Lord, I often think of church history and our Puritan brothers. And our Puritan brothers, even though they wrote a lot of of good literature, a lot of heavy, meaty uh, theological material to read throughout the ages, our Puritan brothers looked down on the celebration of Christmas. In fact, they saw it, and I quote, as a frivolous festival without biblical precedence. And their reason was this, and I quote, No one knew when Christ was born, and nowhere in the Bible did it say to celebrate the Savior's birth with riotous festivities. Christmas, therefore, was sinful and immoral and superfluous to the Christian calendar. Consequently, the Puritan campaign against Christmas was almost as old as Puritanism itself. So I began to think about this, and I began to to think, well, what happened to the shepherds? Did they not celebrate the birth of the Lord? What happened to the angels? Did they not celebrate the birth of the Lord Jesus? What happened to the, to the uh, wise men as they come two years later to visit Christ? What happened there? Did they celebrate the birth of our Lord? So our Puritan brothers, although they wrote a lot of meaty and theologically uh, true material, I think they missed the point on this. There is issue, and I, and I highlight the word is. There is issue with celebrating Christmas. If the birth of Jesus is without the incarnation. If Jesus is not the center of the reason that we come to meet this morning, don't call it Christmas. Call it something else. Call it your holiday. If all that you think about on Christmas is Santa Claus and presents under the tree, call it something something else. Don't call it Christmas. Call it something entirely different, but don't try to hijack the true meaning of Christmas, which is the incarnation of the Son of God. And without the Word becoming flesh, we are left with the holiday just about a man from Galilee who was born in a feeding trough without any redeeming qualities. But that's not the case at all. That's not the case at all. In fact, the prologue of John If you're not familiar with the prologue of John, that's just the introductory part of the Gospel of John, beginning at the Gospel of John chapter 1. And the evangelist John paints a very different scene than Jesus being just simply an ordinary man. Jesus was more than just a simple simple ordinary man. His miraculous birth really stamps the miraculous from his birth all the way up to his resurrection, and all the way into eternity. In fact, the evangelist John says this, beginning at chapter 1 and verse 1. He says, In the beginning was the Word, the beginning of all that was ever made, creation itself. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made And verse 4 says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. So in the very beginning, the Bible tells me that the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, was there, active in creation. Further down in verse 14, 
which I believe is the crux of the birth narrative of our Lord Jesus, is this. And the Word became flesh and dwelt or tabernacled, lived among us, and the apostles say that we have seen His glory as the only Son of God. We have seen His glory from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. The apostles, the apostles seen the Lord Jesus. They heard Him. They heard Him preach. They saw Him. They touched Him. They felt Him. And they know that He is, from, he is the only Son, uh, Son of God, full of grace and truth. In fact, the word logos, the word, word here, the logos, uh, is the word that we get reasoning from. So John is ultimately saying the reason for creation itself is, is Jesus. He's the reason we're here. He's the reason that we're born. He's, he was the reason that we exist. Everything was made through him. And there wasn't anything that was made that wasn't made through the Son of God. And then, and then as if to show us what humility truly looks like, the Bible tells us in what the verse that I just read that he came to dwell in flesh. He lived as a man, he suffered like a man, and yet simultaneously and at the same time and in the same essence was God Almighty. So, I disagree with our Puritan brothers. Is there reason to celebrate one of the most significant events in history? Only in Christmas, only if Christmas, is about the incarnate Son of God who came to take away the sins of the world. That is the reason that we meet. That's the reason we got up this morning, had our breakfast, our coffee, maybe opened a few presents, got dressed and decided today is the day I'm going to the house of the Lord because I want to worship Jesus who died for me, who came into this world, who died as a, who died as a, a, a man, on the cross, rose triumphantly on the third day, and is God in flesh. And so, it's not so much about stocking stuffers, so much about presents under the tree or the tree itself. It isn't even about meeting with your family on Christmas Day, although those things are good, and those are good traditions to have, and, and those, are, those are great that we have those things in, in, our, in our lives, and, and I'm glad that we do, but it will never take the place of the incarnate Son of God. And maybe this sense of awe and wonder escapes us and something that we need to recapture again. It is in this same gospel account that we turn our attention to for just a moment. In fact, I will invite you to turn with me to John 3 and 16. Maybe you don't have to turn there. Maybe you know it by heart. I hope that you do. One of the first Bible verses that I ever learned in vacation Bible school was John 3.16. But what I want to do today is I want to look at John 3.16 in three different lenses, and actually four different lenses, and see exactly what it is that John the evangelist is saying. So you might be driving down the road one day and you might see John 3.16 on a bumper sticker. You might see it at a sporting event. And it has been one of those verses that has been debated throughout the year through those who are in a more free will camp, those who are in a more predestination camp position. They have been debated over the years and has been ripped and pulled out of its context uh, more times than I can probably mention. But it is still one of the richest verses in all of Scripture. In fact, I thought to myself that it isn't preached on as much. When was the last sermon that you heard 
on an exposition from John 3.16. Was the last time that we pulled up a sermon, oh yeah, John 3.16. A lot of times that verse is peppered in with the rest of a sermon that you might hear. And they might use it and they might tag it later on. Maybe it's because that there is this great misconception that everyone knows the verse. Everyone knows John 3.16. And so I want to talk with you just a little bit this morning. And I want to challenge you to reflect on the level of love that our Lord has for His creation. When the Lord created humankind, in fact, when He finished all of the created order, the God of the universe, the cosmos itself, stepped back and said that it was very, very good. And so I'll invite you, if you will, John 3.16. I'm not going to ask you to stand because I'm going to be reading about three different versions from this today. But I'll just ask you, if you will, let's just soak in these words and examine these verses. So I'm going to read from you, for you this morning first, John 3.16 in the English Standard Version of the Bible. And you might say they all say the same thing. And at the crux of it, they do say the same thing. But there are some nuances that I want us to kind of focus on this morning as we are thinking about the incarnation, the Son of God robing himself in flesh. Okay? So here it is. If you, if you know the ESV version, you can say it with me. The Bible says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Now that is the English Standard Version of the Bible. Now, a little bit more of an obscure translation is the International Standard Version. Now, in this version, this nuance is a little bit different. All right, So this is what the ISV says. For this is how God loved the world, that He gave His unique Son, so that everyone who believes in Him might not be lost, but have eternal life. And we'll talk about those nuances here in just a moment. And then the King James Version, which we probably all learned in, in um, Sunday school or vacation Bible school. It says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Now the word order, if you were to look this up in a Greek New Testament, in this rendering of a, if, you, if I had a Greek New Testament here, it would read something like this, which is close to the International Standard Version. It would say, For God loved the world in this way. What way? That He gave His his one and only Son, so that everyone who believes or trusts in Him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Now, in these three, four translations, they highlight the very same thing. Namely, that the work of salvation is God's responsibility alone. Now, He is addressing Nicodemus, okay, who is wondering what it means to be born again. And so Jesus would say, you must be born again. You must be born anew. You must be made new by God Himself. There is a quickening. There is awakening. There is salvation that only happens in Jesus. Okay, So uh, there is this highlight in John 3, 16. In fact, verse 17 would say that the Lord Jesus, He came not to condemn the world, but to save the world. Now, 
These three translations, they highlight the same thing, that salvation is a work of God. It is His responsibility at all, alone. And no matter how good we might think that we are in and of ourselves, without the movement of God in our life, we would never, ever step to Him. Salvation is His. So that's why the beginning of this says, For God. It doesn't say for Larry Stevens or for you or for, or for the Apostle John or for any of the evangelist writers. It doesn't say any of that, but it is for God so loved the world. It also says that there is a world that God has created that He loves this world. In fact, He called it very good. And in this world, He loves this. It also says that He sent His Son for people to trust in or to believe in and that Trusting totally in Christ will bring you everlasting life. Okay, and this was like in a eureka moment for Nicodemus and for really for anyone who reads this. Well, how can a man be born again? There's no mention of any responsibility. What, what do I have to do to earn this salvation? Nothing. What do I owe you, Jesus, for dying on the cross? Nothing. You simply believe and trust and serve and follow him the rest of your life. There's no mention of what I've got to do other than believe or trust. It doesn't say anything other than believing, which is better understood as trusting, or I like this, putting full confidence in. If I had anything to do with my salvation, I would be lost today. If I had to keep it, I would have already lost it. There's no other proclamation that has crossed the lips of missionaries and evangelists alike, like John 3.16. But what kind of message has captivated people's heart and minds like for God so loved the world? What other type of message in the world has captivated people's heart and mind today like the message that God so loved the world? What kind of transformative word exists other than this? What kind of message can overthrow such, such words of, of beauty that can change a person's perspective of own life like this, that he gave his only unique son. What is so transformative than the work of the gospel? What message can boast? What message can, just, can, can boast in its overwhelming majesty? There is no other message. In fact, these verses encapsulate the Beauty in God's economy that the world and the lust therein are primed and they're at the crossroad of perishing. The world is at the crossroad of perishing. But the enormous, the eternal message is the love of God that offered a gift. And this gift that is actually God himself. The gift that is given is actually God himself. Think about that. It is himself. This is the gift. He, we, we have it demonstrated in the miraculous birth of our Lord. We have it demonstrated in his life that he lived a totally perfect life. He, not, he didn't have one sin in his life. He was sinless. And we see it demonstrated by his death on the cross that he died on the cross for my sins. And by doing that, he demonstrates this love and then his resurrection. Defeating death, hell, sin, and the grave 
demonstrating the love of God. And so he loved the world. He gave us only begotten or unique son. There's not another one like Jesus. And there never will be. Now, later in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul says that God the Father spared not his own son. We, we find this in Romans 8 and 32, that his own son was numbered, according to Isaiah, with the transgressors. It pleased God to bruise the son. It pleased God to send his son to be born of a virgin, to be born in the manger, to live a perfect life, to die on the cross, and to be put in the grave and to rise again. It pleased God to send his son. And the result of that is this outstanding, astonishing gift. It is deliverance from God's wrath due to sinfulness. But also, it is the giving of everlasting life. The question is, well, how does one become a recipient of this amazing gift of eternal life? Well, first you have to know that it is a work of God. For God. So love the world. And there's nothing, like I said, that I can do or anyone else can do to earn this salvation. I do not have, I do not have, I remember coming to the Lord Jesus. I didn't have to leave the church that day and say, Lord, I'll be right back. Let me, let me get some things straight and I'll be back to, I'll be, I'll be right back with you. I didn't have to go up and put away my cigarettes or my alcohol. I didn't have to do those things to make it right with the Lord. I didn't have to do those things. All I had to do is trust in the Lord Jesus. He forgave me and then God did the cleaning up in my life. He imparted into me His righteousness. And that is the enigma, the puzzle of the ages, is why the Lord received my filthy rags and yet gave me His righteousness. Have y'all figured that out yet? When I stand before the Lord, he isn't going to see the goodness of, of Larry. He's not going to see your goodness. He's not going to see your righteousness. He's not going to see the good things that you do and say, enter in, those things have saved you. When you stand before God, the only thing that God is going to see is, as part of salvation is the righteousness of Jesus. That is what God will see. And so we give it all to him. God does the saving. And first it is by his work and then by believing on the Son of God who died for our sins. And, you know, sometimes people throw that, that terminology around that, well, we know Jesus died on the cross for my sins. And, yes, it is true no matter how cliche that one, somebody might think that is. It's true. It's true that the incarnation... That God the Father stepped into human flesh was for the purpose of the cross. And then the purpose of the cross for the resurrection. And so, it is by His work and His work alone. Now in this verse, there is a word that we probably overlook or that we hardly think about at all. And that is this particle, so. And I did a lot of work on this little word, so. Just thinking about it. And this tiny little word is impacted with, with meaning. Just as we read uh, the, the, in the letters that use this gospel conjunction uh, of the word but. We were like this, but we're like this now. 
Okay, we were in our sins, but Jesus has now saved us, and we are in righteousness. So, as the word but or and is impacted with meaning, so is this little tiny word that we find in John 3, 16. God so loved the world. It's impacted with meaning when we read it. And I remember working with the city of Jacksonville. I had the privilege of working with the city of Jacksonville 11 years. And seven of those years, I worked as a supervisor. And so, I often got to train people on the job site. And we would have some new guys, and we overturned a lot of guys often who would come in and couldn't do the work, and then they would leave. And I would often, as I am training these guys on the job site, I'm showing them how to, to work our hydraulic lift or something to that effect, and I would, as I am showing them or executing this task, I would say something like this, you, you do this like so, and you demonstrate it. You operate this lift like like so and so we show them how to operate a piece of machinery or instructing them and we can likewise say that john the evangelist he is saying god loved the world like so like so how by sending his son in order for people to trust him as the only way for eternal life that is the true gift and the beauty of this time of year. It's not the presence that we receive under the tree, but it is His presence with us. It's not the presence we receive, but His presence with us. And this one little word, so, is so packed with meaning. In fact, the Prince of Preachers, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, he said this of this small gospel-centered word, so. Charles Spurgeon said, Pliny declared Cicero, that once saw the Iliad of Homer written in so small a character that it can be contained in a nutshell. And maybe that's where we got the terminology, the gospel in a nutshell. He says, Peter Bales, a celebrated calligrapher in the days of Queen Elizabeth, he wrote the whole Bible so that it was shut up in a common walnut as its casket. In these days of advanced mechanisms, even great Greater marvels in miniature have been achieved. But never has so much meaning been compressed into so small a space as is the famous little word, so. So in the text in John 3, 16, it says, For God so loved the world, He loved the world in this way, that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal or everlasting life. And my friends, that is... As Charles Haddon Spurgeon said, that is the gospel in a nutshell. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we are thankful for your word. And we are thankful for the beauty of Christmas, which is the incarnate Son of God. We are thankful, God, that we know that we use this terminology that it was your plan to send your Son. And even in using the word plan, it's short-sighted as to know that your plan was from eternity. You didn't have to sit down and calculate or plan something out. It has always been in your will to send your Son. And so, Father, as we reflect on this this morning through John 3.16, and this word, so, for God, so, you love the world like so, that you sent your Son. The very reason we sit in these pews this morning, the very reason we sing songs of praises to you, Lord, it's because you sent your Son. Let us not gloss over the wonder and awe 
of what transpired so many years ago in that manger in Bethlehem. And we are thankful for you, and we worship you today in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Uh, in closing, as you see, the uh, Adventist reed is, uh, wreath is, is lit. I think it still is. And so this is the way we're going to close out today. I'm going to ask if our musicians will come and will um, lead us in joy to the world. But I want to recite for you the birth of Jesus and the birth narrative. And as you see, the, the candles are lit here, and I've got some candles over here as well. So as I began to read the birth narrative of our Lord, as best as you can, listen in. But I'm going to ask you, if you will, as soon as I read, start reading, if you will come up, grab you a candle, and light it off the Adventists, the Advent wreath. And what we're going to do is, as you come up, just try to circle around in this sanctuary. And once I finish reading the birth narrative, then we're going to sing Joy to the World. We'll dismiss and go to our homes. How does that sound? All right, if you will, let's stand, and I'll begin our reading. And as I do that, the candles are right here in this basket. If you can't get up and come get one, our deacons will get you a candle right where you are, okay? All right, let's begin. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quinteros was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. Joseph also went up from Galilee, the town of Nazareth, to Judah, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Because he was of the house, the lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger. Because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over the flocks by night. But the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone about them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, and behold, I bring you good news, great joy. It will be for all people, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. Suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace amongst those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, 
Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returning, returned glorifying and praising God and for all that they had heard and all that they had seen as it had been told them. And at the end of the eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb.